All right. Good evening, everyone. We have a lot to get to tonight, including a major development from Capitol Hill. Okay, remember how Republicans blocked the formation of an independent commission to probe the January 6th insurrection? Well, today, Speaker Pelosi showed she is still the boss, announcing a select committee to investigate the insurrection. It means Democrats will have subpoena power and as much time as they need to look into the attack. And we'll have much more on that coming up. But we begin the readout tonight with bad news for Rudy. Thanks to the legal work that he did for Trump, who ultimately stiffed him on his legal bills, former mayor and one-time SDNY prosecutor Giuliani is now banned from practicing law and faces permanent disbarment. A New York state appellate court today suspended his law license over the election lies he spewed following the November election. In a 33-page decision, the panel of judges wrote, quote, we conclude that there is uncontroverted evidence that Giuliani communicated demonstrably false and misleading statements to courts, lawmakers, and the public at large in his capacity as lawyer for the former president. In other words, a court of law literally ruled that Rudy Giuliani is a liar. In fact, he was deemed such a prolific liar that he was considered an immediate threat to the public interest. And as you might imagine... He didn't take it well. How can they say I lied if I haven't had a hearing? I've been a lawyer for 50 years. I've never had a complaint. Somebody's got to fix this uh, double standard justice system, which is not America anymore. I, I mean, I might as well be in Iran or East Germany. But they think I'm going to violate the law after having almost been killed by the mafia, the FARC, the Islamic terrorists. They're out of their minds. What do you do now, having lost your life? I fight back. That's what I do. What they did should be a problem for them. They should be being investigated. That's not American. That's what they do in dictatorships. Okay, that's cute. Coming from the guy who used bogus allegations to try and overturn a Democratic election. In the months after November 3rd, we saw Giuliani lead what could only be called a fantasy fraud tour, embracing and repeating the most outlandish allegations and conspiracy theories to push the big lie. Of course, there were plenty of signs that Giuliani's quest was doomed before it even got off the ground, like the fact that he launched his effort from the dusty parking lot of the Four Seasons Total Landscaping Company in Philadelphia, a venue his team apparently confused with the five-star hotel chain. Then there was Rudy's literal meltdown at the RNC. Trump's legal team was supposed to release the Kraken, but Rudy's runny hair dye stole the show. In suspending his law license, the court cited multiple falsehoods that Giuliani spewed in that effort. And here's just a sample of Rudy's lies. The real question is how many illegals voted? Because every one of those illegal votes has to be taken out. The bare minimum is 40 or 50,000. The reality is about 250,000. I guess the crooks in Philadelphia are disappointed in this. They only submitted 8,021 ballots from dead people. Joe Frazier voted in the 2018 yeah. election, five years after he was dead. In Pennsylvania, there are 600,000 more mail-in ballots that came in than were sent out. I don't know what accounts for that 700,000 difference. And I can't imagine you could possibly certify without knowing the explanation of that. Surprise! All of that was false. As the court made clear, Giuliani failed to provide a scintilla of evidence for any of the varying and wildly inconsistent numbers of dead people he alleged had voted. Likewise, on his allegations of undocumented immigrants voting, the court said, quote, these numerical claims are so wildly divergent and irreconcilable that they all cannot be true at the same time. The court also pointed out that while Giuliani's claims ultimately failed on the merits, they fueled the violence of January 6th, the worst attack 
on the U.S. Capitol in more than 200 years. Joining me now is Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor and MSNBC columnist. And Glenn, I just want to just for a moment take a take stock of where Rudy is at this moment. Let's just go through the list. He cannot practice law. He is facing disbarment. Trump never even paid him his legal fees, so he didn't get the money. And he's now under criminal investigation for his dealings uh, with Ukraine, where he was trying to dig up dirt on Joe Biden and his son. Your thoughts on Rudy's uh, status in the world right now? You know, Joy, I just watched your lead in with the clips of Rudy um, saying that he's going to fight back. He apparently is incapable of experiencing shame, because when you read this 33 page court order, it, uh, you know, if it were me as a lawyer, I, I would crawl under a rock and you would never hear from me again. You know, if if people I think should take the time to read it, because what they do is they set out all of the evidence supporting their conclusions that Rudy lied. He lied about voting in Pennsylvania. He lied about voting in Georgia. He lied about absentee voting. He lied about underage voting. He lied about convicted felons voting. And the court is careful to say he lied at press conferences. He lied at state legislative hearings. He lied on radio broadcasts. The court notes as both host and guest. He lied on podcasts, TV appearances, and he lied in court. And if people really are willing to listen to anything else Rudy Giuliani has to say about the presidential election or anything else, well, then they are unwilling to accept the truth. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's hard to feel sorry for him. I mean, there's, I, I, you know, personally, as somebody who lived in New York in the Giuliani era, in Giuliani time era, it's hard to have any empathy for a guy who sicked uh, the police on uh, black citizens of New York, tried to make money off of the, the moment that he had did one good thing on 9-11, sort of managed things uh, and, and, and profited and then turned to doing this. But it's wild that he did all this for someone who didn't even seem to respect him. Let me read from you. The Daily Mail had this report. There's a new book that talks about Giuliani's relationship with Trump. Michael Bender did this book. This is the quote. Donald Trump enjoyed tormenting Rudy Giuliani, mocking him for falling asleep in meetings and calling him pathetic after the former mayor's television appearances. Rudy, you sucked, Trump told him after one TV hit. You were weak. And yet, Giuliani rarely complained and instead seemed to crave the attention. So this guy was getting abused by the former president, not paid by the former president, and yet lied and threw his law license away for it. What, what do you make of that kind of behavior? Uh, you know, birds of a corrupt feather flock together. And whether it's Donald Trump mocking Ted Cruz or his family or, you know, making fun of Lindsey Graham and these, I'm sorry, very weak men continuing to follow him, you know, like like they're a, a wounded puppy. I don't understand it. Um, I guess they feel the power of his his orbit and they they want to kind of stay in his good graces so they can keep a little bit of that power for themselves. But, you know, I, I saw in your lead in you also had the clip where, I mean, Rudy Giuliani alleges, of all people, that Smokin' Joe Frazier, the former yes. heavyweight champ, even voted. And you know mm -hmm. what? That It sounds funny and it sounds like a throwaway line. But the but the New York court went so far as to get the documentation from the state of Pennsylvania that Joe Frazier was taken off the voter rolls in February of 2012, three years after the champ died. Now, you know, so all of these lies are easy to tell, 
But it takes a whole system of determined and dedicated people to uncover them and to hold the Rudy Giuliani's of the world accountable. And, you know, the court wraps up by saying these kind of lies are exactly what led to a violent, deadly insurrection and undermines confidence in our free and fair elections. This is not fun and games. Yeah. And if those other lawyers that participated in this are paying attention to this, Look sharp because uh, you could be next. Uh, Glenn Kirshner, always great to talk to you. Thank you very much. And in a letter last month, the governor, general counsel and attorney general of Pennsylvania urged the appellate court in New York to discipline Giuliani for his reckless conduct. Among other things, they said that Giuliani's abusive misuse of the courts had serious consequences. Pennsylvania election workers have received death threats from individuals convinced of the truth of Mr. Giuliani's lies. And with me now is Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro. Uh, you know, and thank you for being here, uh, Attorney Shapiro, because it is it is easy to laugh at and mock Giuliani for being mocked by Trump and yet lying for him and losing his law license. But I think what the judge said is the key, and it's the point you've made as well. This resulted in actual death threats to real people, to real people who worked in elections. Talk a little bit about that. It did. It not only resulted in actual death threats to great public servants here in Pennsylvania, But as I've been saying now for months, it led directly to the violent insurrection on our Capitol on January 6th. And in fact, this panel who uh, suspended his law license today made that point that by abusing our courts and feeding them the big lie, presumably on behalf of Donald Trump, it stoked the fire and led to January 6th. This is very, very serious, as you correctly state. Now, there's some good that came out of the news today, right? Number one, it shows there is accountability in our system. And number two, like I've been saying all along, do not mess with Pennsylvania so long as I'm the attorney general. Yeah, and and is it a, a ruling like this and the way that the judge laid it out, I mean, could Giuliani be liable legally in the state of Pennsylvania for any harm that came to people, you know, real genuine harm uh, that came to people or threats that people endured? Well, we'll see. I I have made clear that I'm going to hold all the lawyers accountable who have engaged in the big lie, Rudy Giuliani uh, and others. Um, And we're going to hold them uh, accountable to the fullest extent that we can. The reason why we reached out to this disciplinary uh, board in New York is because that's where he is barred. That's where he at least was licensed. And we thought that that was the appropriate venue to lay it out. And what uh, your prior guest said and what you said in your run up is is correct. And that is they looked at all the lies and not just the lies at Four Seasons Total Landscaping, but the lies in court. Look, Joy, we take an oath to the court to speak truth. Rudy Giuliani did not do that. And today was the first step toward accountability for him. And there will be accountability for the other lawyers as well. And, and, you know, it's not just lawyers, because you've also got media people who are participating and pushing the big lie and really not even low key calling for a violent retribution for Donald Trump not being president anymore. Can I play you something real quick? This is a guy from OAN. Yeah. I don't even know his name. He's, he's one of the One American News personalities. His name is Pearson Sharp. Uh, I'm not even going to play it for you. I'm just going to tell you what it, what it says. Uh, I don't <laughs> even want to play it. He's calling, yeah, he's calling for the mass executions of thousands of Americans based on his belief in this claim, this false claim that widespread voter fraud amounted to, quote, a coup against the former president. And this is what he said. He said, in the past, America has had a very good solution for dealing with such traitors. Execution. That feels like similarly putting people in your state and in every state 
that has OAN in danger. Constitution in this country doesn't allow you to incite violence. Obviously, I didn't uh, see that person say that, but there needs to be accountability for the lawyers, for the media, for others who are engaged in this big lie. This is not a joke. And by the way, these people can't just be dismissed as fringe actors. These are the modern Republican Party leaders. These are the people running statewide in these swing states. These are the people running state legislatures. These are the people trying to disenfranchise black and brown voters, voters with disabilities. These are the people who are now running the Republican Party and doing it seemingly on behalf of Donald Trump. There needs to be truth telling and there needs to be accountability. And what we saw today with this decision on Giuliani is an example of the kind of accountability that we need to continue to pursue in this country in order to protect our democracy. Are you worried about um, violence in the 20 uh, related to the 2022 elections in your state? I'm always worried about violence when leaders either directly uh, try to incite violence, like the quote that you just had before, like the kinds of things that Giuliani and Trump and others said all along. I'm also worried when they allow their words to be misappropriated by the Proud Boys and by white supremacists and by others who every single day are threatening and bringing about real violence in our communities. Look, I'm the chief law enforcement officer of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I see the intel that comes in after these so-called leaders say these things. There's a spike in the hate speech. There's a spike in hate incidents. There's a rise in that type of activity in our communities. We all need to be vigilant about it. And here's the thing, if they're attacking someone because of the color of their skin or because of their faith or because of their gender, it makes us all less safe. It makes our entire country less safe and it breeds violence. And we need to work together to stop that. Uh, Attorney Josh Shapiro, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate uh, your time tonight. Thank you. Okay, and up next on The Readout, Republicans fail in their desperate attempt to avoid an investigation of the January 6th insurrection. Plus. We had a uh, really good meeting. And to answer your direct question, we have a deal. President Biden gets his infrastructure bill, kind of. Well, that's good. But did he give away too much to get there? Plus, why conservatives like Laura Ingraham and Matt Gates now think it's safe to mock and ridicule and even defund the military. And you may not think a court taking away a rich celebrity's freedom has much to do with you. But think again. I'll explain in tonight's absolute worst. The readout continues after this. everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. 
this morning with great solemnity and sadness. Uh, I'm announcing that the House will be establishing a uh, select committee on the January 6th insurrection. We yielded on every point. We yielded on the makeup of the committee. We yielded on the timing of the committee. We yielded on the process of the committee. I just would not yield on the scope. They wanted to make it about Black Lives Matter. That wasn't what happened on January 6th. So I was not going to yield on the scope. Speaker Nancy Pelosi, everybody, speaking the truth and doing what Republicans in both chambers have refused to do, which is to investigate the January 6th insurrection. If past select committees serve as a guide, Republicans will have forfeited their ability to dictate who is subpoenaed before the committee, given their minority status. That could put certain House members in very uncomfortable positions, given their alleged interactions with some of the organizers of the attack on our Capitol. Today, Attorney General Merrick Garland said the Justice Department has now arrested 500 people on charges related to the January 6th insurrection. Yesterday, a D.C. federal judge, a D.C. federal judge issued the very first sentence for one of those insurrectionists. Anna Morgan Lloyd pleaded guilty to a single charge of illegally demonstrating in the Capitol and was sentenced to three years probation. While the punishment was surprisingly light in issuing it, Judge Royce Lamberth called the insurrection a disgrace and slammed Republican lawmakers who sought to whitewash it. While he never explicitly named any members individually, the judge clearly alluded to Georgia Congressman Andrew Clyde when he said, quote, the attempt of some congressmen to rewrite history that these were tourists walking through the Capitol is utter nonsense, adding this wasn't a peaceful demonstration. It wasn't an accident that it turned violent. And joining me now for the latest on what happened today, Scott McFarlane, NBC4 Washington investigative reporter. Tell us everything you know, Scott, please. <laughs> hey, Joy, good evening. Great to be here. Let's start off with the milestone we hit, our 500th arrest in the U.S. Capitol insurrection. But let's be clear, we're still in close range to the starting line for a couple of reasons. The FBI director has said there are hundreds more investigations ongoing beyond the cases we know about. What's more, according to my tally, we're at between one and two percent of the cases that have reached plea agreements. So we're near the start. And even today, some of the first defendants, like that man who faced off against the solitary Capitol police officer outside the Senate chamber, the man with his feet uh, on Nancy Pelosi's office desk, they're still litigating whether to be held in jail, pre-trial, or motions in their cases. A long way to go in those. But what we know so far, in the first sentencing, is a bad sign, even though it's a small sample size, a bad sign for defendants. One of the lowest level defendants, Anna Morgan Lloyd of Indiana, accused of no property damage, no violence that day. She got up in court yesterday and apologized to the American people. She's a 49-year-old grandmother from Indiana. She got, in her sentence, exactly what prosecutors wanted, exactly what they requested, three years probation. She wanted just hours of community service. Also, we know from the first major plea agreement yesterday, a charge of conspiracy, a plea agreement to the conspiracy charge from Graydon Young, an oath keeper from Florida. He's agreed to participate in the investigation, Joy. He's going to flip. He's going to talk. This was a bad week for the other defendants we know about, though there's so much more road to travel in this case. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Scott McFarland, with all that great reporting and that quiet storm voice. We always love having you on. Thank you very much. Okay, with me now is Congressman Joaquin Castro of Texas. He was an impeachment manager in the second Trump impeachment. So you just heard Scott, uh, Congressman. And it, 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 with all that we're learning about how severe the attack was, with all the new video that's slowly but surely coming out and how violent this was, and the fact that people are going to start pleading and how serious things were. 
Are you surprised that Republicans would prefer to have a select committee, the kind of thing that was used with, you know, Watergate or, or Benghazi with the fake Benghazi scandal, which can go on past December, which could go on into January 2020, into 2022, an election year, and in which they would have no subpoena power? Are you surprised? Do you think they just made a political mistake? Well, I guess on the one hand, I am surprised that they didn't accept a bipartisan agreement to create a commission of citizens to look into this. All of us as concerned Americans trying to figure out what happened and just as importantly, also trying to figure out how we make sure it doesn't happen again. Uh, But I think that they're going to uh, just call this committee, this select committee, a partisan operation and attack it. Uh, even though the speaker in her announcement made clear that this is a very solemn thing uh, for us to undertake. Uh, And I believe that the folks on that committee are going to do their job uh, without trying to um, place blame on people that aren't responsible. Uh, They're not going to go out of their way to be hyperpartisan. But the fact is you had an attempted coup at the United States Capitol on January 6th, and we have to get to the bottom of who exactly was involved whether it included other members of Congress or or anybody in the executive branch. Uh, And then the second piece of that, figure out how you make sure that it doesn't happen again. And it's going to be very difficult to call this a partisan sort of hit job. The day that Michael Fanone is called, presumably he'd be somebody you'd call. The day that other Capitol Police officers who went through that attack and that they testify, I mean, the, the, the nation will be riveted to that. If Brian Sicknick's mom is allowed to be called that, that, I mean, you did an impeachment trial. You know how this goes. Is this going to be an opportunity for the country to really learn the story in a narrative fashion, the way that we were able to with impeachment? Yeah, this will be another opportunity for the country to learn the truth and also to learn about the lives and the people that were directly affected by this. Uh, And and interestingly, as I've read some of the stories of the folks that were involved, uh, many of them were actually conservative people themselves. They were conservative Republicans. Uh, And so this was something that hit people who were all over the political spectrum. Uh, But the country has not really had a chance in in the kind of setting that you'll see through a committee hearing where you can go for hours and hours. The country's not had a chance to really hear the the stories of people and and their lives and how they were affected and also talk about uh, who was responsible in a more comprehensive way. You know, we've heard. Uh, leads and trails here and there about members of Congress that may have had communication with the different folks who were planning it, uh, people in the executive branch, the same thing. Well, this will be an opportunity for Congress to, to subpoena people if they have to and get to the bottom of that on behalf of the American people. Which is why I think Watergate is a better uh, sort of analogy to what we're seeing here. Let's talk about one of the people who may have been involved. Kevin McCarthy had a conversation with the former president, with Donald Trump on the day of the insurrection, apparently begging him to call off his people. He's then gone dark and decided that he loves Donald Trump too much to talk about this. How do you expect him to respond if he's subpoenaed? That's a great question. And I think that uh, Kevin McCarthy at this point is in denial of reality. Uh, And unfortunately, the ticket uh, of admission for the Republican Party and success in the Republican primary right now is to deny reality deny that Donald Trump had any responsibility for this. Uh, And as you know, some folks calling it 
what looked like a, a day of tourism at the Capitol. And so it'll be really interesting how Kevin McCarthy responds. But I know what he should do. Uh, he should cooperate uh, and he should work in the best interest of the American people in getting uh, to the truth. Yeah, I mean, fights it or takes the fifth. That's going to be a very, very bad look. Uh, Congressman Joaquin Castro, thank you very much for being here. Really appreciate it. And still ahead, the politics of the infrastructure deal. The word bipartisanship is on everybody's lips today. But what does this deal really tell us about the chances for the Biden agenda in Congress? And the toxic nature of tonight's absolute worst will have you slipping under. You see what I did there? The readout continues after this. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Today, President Biden and a group of senators, five Democrats and five Republicans, announced a $1.2 trillion infrastructure deal. And it was sort of a startling scene. A very chummy group of senators, all white, with the president, a former senator, looking all comfy cozy, as if there's like literally no threat to our democracy. And as if those five Republicans hadn't just voted to deny people of color the right to vote. They acted like everything was just totally normal because, you know, bipartisanship. I'm speaking to the diversity of what we know and understand in this country, the diversity of needs, the diversity of interest, and thus why it's so important to come together not only across parties, but really to come together for projects that benefit the entire country. Yeah, diversity. Uh, If democracy wasn't being torched by Republicans, I guess you could be excited. But for those of us who are worried about our democracy, the whole scene honestly was a bit unnerving. Some Democrats are less than thrilled with this deal. Even before the announcement, they balked at the limited size and scope. Way too small, paltry, pathetic. It has to be combined with a second, much more robust, adequate package to be deserving of a vote. We have to have the whole thing, not just not just cleave off a little piece of it. President Biden acknowledged that passing some of his plans, like expanding child care and education, would have to come through a budget reconciliation process. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi held the line, meanwhile, saying that she won't even take up either piece of legislation until they both pass the Senate. We will not take up a bill in the House until the Senate passes the bipartisan bill and an interest and a reconciliation bill. There ain't going to be an infrastructure bill unless we have the reconciliation bill passed by the United States Senate. She said there ain't. Biden said that he agreed with Speaker Pelosi's plan and issued a warning of his own. But if only one comes to me, I'm not if this is the only thing that comes to me, I'm not signing. It's in tandem. Joining me now, my weekend obsessions, Tiffany Cross, host of MSNBC's The Cross Connection, and Jonathan Capehart, host of MSNBC's The Sunday Show. You are now looking at really, pretty much what I do with my weekend mornings is watch these two. Thank you both for being here. Always great to see you. Okay, Miss Tiffany, my third on-set guest. I'm so excited. Listen. I can look, I can touch you. I know. How So listen, I, I, yeah. listen I, I guess I want to be positive. I know. It's hard, though. A, I know. the talk about 
diversity by yeah. uh, Lisa Murkowski. This is what AOC had to say about that. She said the diversity of the bipartisan coalition pretty perfectly conveys which communities get centered and which get left behind when leaders prioritize bipartisan deal making over inclusive lawmaking, which prioritizes delivering the most impact possible for the most people. Yeah, uh, she spoke for me. She's and she's right. Look, this is why we don't necessarily belong to a political party. We belong to a party of black people, the party of people of color, the party of people of the rising majority. And when you look at what was left out of infrastructure, affordable housing was left out. They weren't able to roll back the uh, Donald Trump tax cuts. But look, I know politics is sometimes about telling a story. Story and people like a winner. So they dropped or failed on voting rights. And yeah. so I think they have to present this infrastructure bill like, hey, we won, but not necessarily when you look at the communities who were left out. So it's really disappointing. And I hope it sends a message that you're trying to negotiate with terrorists. You're trying to negotiate with people who are still beholden to the, their MAGA leader, the MAGA king, and they're not going to negotiate in good faith. They would rather uh, win favor with Donald Trump than protect the American people people. And it was just, it's a disappointing deal, to be honest. But I get their their effort in trying to yeah. tell a good story. And look, before Twitter goes crazy and says, well, we could have had Trump in office, I get all that. But I can't be satisfied with crumbs when I see people eat a full extravagant meal across yeah. the table from me. So I hope we, they can do better. And, and you know, this is my challenge, uh, Jonathan. And you know, you you know this process, you, you've been a DC guy and you get it. And I, and I, and the, the challenge I have is that this sent me back to sort of like the pre 1960s Senate, even though there were some women there where, you know, of course you can make deals when you all have the same basic interests. And nobody there is threatened by the loss of their voting rights. So, of course, they could get together. They could look past the fact that those very same Republicans don't want any of the three of us to have equal access to the ballot. They can get over that and do a deal with them. I have trouble doing almost any deal with Republicans until they embrace democracy. Am I being too negative? <laughs> I, 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 you, I understand where the negativity comes from. <clears throat> But you got to look at it from President Biden and Vice President Harris's point of view. And that is this. Yeah, they those Republicans said no to voting rights. Yet we were elected by the American people to govern. We have got to do something. And so when you you're trying to get an infrastructure bill, which will help people. You hold the nose and you try to get it done. What I find very interesting about this whole thing is that first Speaker Pelosi comes out, and I'm glad you played that clip because my neck whipped back when she said there ain't going to be too. no... Her neck whipped side to side. She was like, there ain't going to be <laughs> no vote in the House until the Senate does its thing. And what she's doing is she's protecting her at-risk members because she doesn't want them to take a hard vote if the Senate is not going to take hard votes themselves. So that's hurdle number one, or actually hurdle number two. Hurdle number one is the reconciliation vote. I understand the upset over the, the, um, like the super democratic priorities that didn't make it into the compromise bill. That's why they keep talking about reconciliation. That, all of that stuff is going in the much easier to pass reconciliation, much easier to pass simple majority simple majority vote, which is why the president said, I'm not signing the bipartisan deal unless you also send me the reconciliation deal, which is why Speaker Pelosi says, I'm not taking a vote on that bipartisan deal unless you also send over the reconciliation deal passed by the Senate. So, I mean, I understand the negativity. I just wouldn't be um, I just wouldn't be mad and angry 
at the president and the administration for trying to do what they're trying to do. Being mindful, being being mindful that this we're probably looking at the Hindenburg going down (laughs) anyway. Right. But remember, they were elected to to try to do these things. Yeah. And they're trying. Well, I, you know, and I think yeah. they're doing it smartly. Well, when Kristen Sinema acts like Lucy and pulls the football, they're like, I'm not voting for the reconciliation bill. Surprise. Right. OK, let's let's do one other uh, thing. You've, you've got the, the sentencing coming uh, for Derek Chauvin. He's going to be sentenced on Friday. You've been covering this story a yeah. lot uh, on the cross connection. What is that? What, what are you expecting to happen? He's asking you know, basically to go home, time served. Right. <laughs> the, the audacity, the severity, yeah. right? But not very surprising. Yeah. Look, I think we saw on trial everybody expressed remorse for Derek Chauvin's death, except, or I'm sorry, for George Floyd's death, except yeah. for Derek Chauvin. So I think this is their blood sacrifice. You know, this is the system's way of saying, no, look, we're sending this guy to jail for a long time. So, you know, never mind all these other incidents of police brutality and all these other, you know, home camera videos of people being tased and beaten and black bodies being uh, devastated and destroyed. So I anticipate that he will get a lengthy sentence. Uh, when you look at Minnesota law and what it entails around sentencing, I think that he might see the maximum. Yeah. Um, the judge who uh, presided over the trial is also presiding over the sentencing. Right. Um, and I think, you know, he has a lot of, of outside pressure uh, to, to give this guy a good sentence. But, I, you know, it's still so what? You know, so what? It's still not justice if this guy goes to jail. And it's still a system that uh, does not value black lives. And so I think that's the larger discussion. It's easier to send this guy to jail than it is to have a real conversation around the system and how it disrespects our bodies on almost a daily basis. Absolutely. Uh, One other thing I have to get to with you, Jonathan Capar. You have a great special coming up. This weekend for Pride Month, I'm excited about it. One of my goody, goody friends, uh, Ms. Karina, is in it. So talk about your special that's coming up. Yes. Yeah, so on Sunday, um, it's called Pride of the White House. It is a look at some of the LGBTQ, uh, out LGBTQ members of the Biden administration. We have Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. You have uh, Principal Deputy White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, the C- Deputy White House Communications Director Peely Tobar. You have the, uh, the out spokesperson for the State Department, Ned Price, and you also have the senior White House advisor for LGBTQ plus engagement, Reggie Greer. And this really wonderful thing happens at the end. Um, we did as Reggie comes on to present a Zoom wall of 50 more LGBTQ members of the administration wow. um, sort of wow. putting in in face the president's um, uh, mantra of having a, an administration that looks like America. And so yeah. that's Sunday it's at a story 10 p.m. That. It's a story. It, or we'll Exciting. be there watching it. Uh, I don't miss anything that you guys Congrats, do. Congrats, Jonathan. Go, Jonathan. I love okay. it. Thanks. Fabulous. <laughs> we'll all be watching. <laughs> Tiffany Cross, Jonathan Capehart. This is your weekends, people. Here it is. They're beautiful. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Thank you guys very much. If all the conservative, ra- it's, I mean, I'm sorry, if, all, if the new conservative rally, rallying cry of defund the military seems a bit out of place, the so-called reasoning behind it will not. But that doesn't make make it any less infuriating. Stay with us. The GOP's anti-woke crusade has now reached the Pentagon with Matt Gates, the Florida congressman currently being investigated for having sex with and trafficking a minor, quizzing Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin about critical race theory. We do not teach critical race theory. We don't, we don't embrace uh, critical race theory. And I think, I think that's a spurious uh, uh, conversation. 
Gates's questioning then led to this viral moment by General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I want to understand white rage, and I'm white, and I want to understand it. So what is it that caused thousands of people to assault this building and try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America? What caused that? I want to find that out. I've read Mao Zedong. I've read, I've read Karl Marx. I've read Lenin. That doesn't make me a communist. And I personally find it offensive that we are accusing the United States military, our general officers, our commissioned, non-commissioned officers of being, quote, woke or something else because we're studying some theories that are out there. Conservative media is now pouncing on these words to justify the new rallying cry of defund the military. Exactly what you'd expect from a network that fawned over a leader who reportedly called the war dead losers and suckers. But it isn't just conservative media putting a muzzle on anti-racist teachings within our institutions. Per Politico, the group Heritage Action is now trying to shoehorn this language into must-pass legislation, such as the annual defense spending bill. Joining me now is Congresswoman Chrissy Houlihan of Pennsylvania, who's an Air Force veteran, and Tim Miller, writer-at-large for The Bulwark. And Representative Houlihan, I, I want to start with you on this, both as a, a veteran um, and somebody who um, is serving in the United States Congress. The new reporting in Politico is that Steve Bannon is back, and his plan here is to turn this fake, made-up, version of, of critical race theory, which is really just anti-racism. They hate anti-racism. So she, they, he wants to turn that into their new Tea Party. He says this isn't Q. It's not mainstream suburban moms. A lot of people uh, are Trump voters, blah, blah, blah. He thinks it's good politics. But also this news that Heritage Action is saying they want to now try to place this language about this made-up stuff into must-pass bills and defund the military. What do you make of this now push to defund the military? I never thought that I would be standing in front of you today uh, thinking that a Republic, the Republican Party, as we've noted historically, would ever say something like that we need to defund the military. And in fact, though, yesterday and today, we have started to hear that. And it is, I think, a very strategic strategy uh, in inserting critical race theory and, and uh, scaring people, frankly. And I think we're at this place where I've, I've never seen anything like it where the Democratic Party is appropriately, uh, you know, speaking to, the ma to making sure that people are protected and defended. And the Republican Party is seeming to be punitive and trying to uh, withhold funding for protecting and defending uh, over conversations about making sure that we have an educated fighting force, an educa educating warrior force. Yeah. And, you know, Tim, you've been a Republican a long time. I mean, we are now at the point where you have people like Matt Gates, you know, making fun of and mocking the military, saying this is the reason that we don't win any more wars with generals like this, talking about Mark Milley, who's actually put his body on the line for this country and also saying and then deleting that we should defund the FBI. You have Madison Cawthorn mocking the people who died and fought in Vietnam, a war that Republicans used to defend, saying, yeah, you can topple the U.S. government. Just ask the Viet Cong. So I guess he's team Viet Cong now. I mean, that and you combine that with Donald Trump calling our military losers and suckers. And apparently, per this new reporting on CNN, telling that General Milley himself, the same good man, pushed back on Trump's argument that the military should intervene violently to quell protesters last year. Quote, just shoot them, Trump said on multiple occasions inside the Oval Office, according to the excerpts from Michael Bender's book. When Milley and then Attorney General William Barr would push back, Trump toned it down, but only slightly. Well, shoot him in the leg or maybe in the foot, but be hard on them. That's the new respect for the military in the Republican Party? Yeah, look, Joy, you've got these 
congressmen, these frat boys, uh, Matt Gates and Madison Cawthorn, trying to lecture uh, General Milley about what uh, our military needs as far as readiness is concerned, when their only military experience is a frat house Call of Duty tournament that they were involved in. Uh, you know, it's all just it's preposterous. I think that it's really important. Just you know, these guys are trolls. These guys are nihilists. So is Laura Ingram. It's just time to acknowledge that this is completely devoid and detached from any serious policy discussion, any serious effort to care about our military, our country's safety. And so I, I think just putting on the political hat, like the Democrats need to go on offense. Of this. I want you to imagine, Joy, if you had last night said on the show that you think we should defund the military because Sir. you think that you're not happy with the politics that's happening inside the military, you'd be in some campaign ads next October. Right. You'd be in some campaign ads and Republicans would be turning that and using that to make the Democrats and Joe Biden seem weak, even if it has nothing to do with Joe Biden. Even if you and Joe Biden disagreed on that. And so, I, look, I, I think that they cannot be allowed to get away with this just because it's nihilism, just because it's trolling. And, and I think that, that making them answer for that and using military veterans like the congresswoman and like other military veterans up front, uh, I think, is the right move for the Democrats right now to not let them just get away with this. Absolutely. And Representative Houlihan, I guess that I'll throw it to you. Are Democrats prepared to go out there and explain to voters that it's Republicans who now want to defund the military? They tried to use defund the police, which is, by the way, DOA as a thing, right? It, it Look at New York City, where they just elected the most pro-cop person to be mayor, or at least they're close to it. That's not a thing. Defund the military is a thing. They're saying it on Fox. Yeah, and I want to back all the way up because I hadn't seen those tweets that you referred to about the Viet Cong, and I'm I'm literally nauseous. My father fought in Vietnam, my grandfather in Korea. Uh, you know, the idea that we can be trolling and, and not understanding the consequences of this. One of the things that struck me about General Milley's testimony uh, yesterday was a continued reminder that from him that not just the people in that room are listening to the things that we're saying, and not just the people who are watching Fox News or this show are listening. When we're talking about defunding the military, the very thing that allows and allows us to be the people we are, say the things that we're saying, and to be the nation that we are and the democracy that we are, other people are listening. Our enemies are listening. And I think what's remarkable about uh, the Democratic Party right now is that we get it. We get it certainly much more than the Republican Party does right now. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's an important uh, di differentiation and distinction that we need to be making. Tim, you and I both grew up in Colorado. So we grew up around a lot of military folks. We have military in our families. It's shocking to me to hear the military you know, just disparaged and treated like garbage by the president and his party. It's shocking to me. And I'm never shocked anymore. <laughs> Is it shocking to you to hear it coming out of the Republicans? It is. Uh, look, it was shocking. Uh, you know, it was one thing you expect this from Trump. You know, with the with the losers and the suckers, this all nonsense. I mean, Trump did this all the way back to the campaign. He accused military members of, of looting and yep. stealing in, in Iraq. And, uh, you know, th this this goes way, way back with him. Uh, uh, but just to see the way, yeah, the way that it's trickled down, is it is unacceptable. And I think that Colorado is the kind of place where the Democrats really can use this to continue to, to push to push their gains. A absolutely. It ain't helpful. So, yeah, yeah especially the, these these loser frat boys who would never even serve the country and never, you know, picked up, a, a you know, an M-16 in their life. They, they don't have the courage to do it. That's why they never did it. Con Congresswoman Chrissy Hulan, who did have the courage. Uh, Tim Miller, who's fabulous and wonderful. Thank you very much. Up next, tonight's absolute worst is straight ahead.
now to a story people are talking about that you might not think affects you, but it's very much a cautionary tale for your grandparents or your parents, you, really anyone. Or Britney Spears. You've heard by now the pop star made a rare appearance in open court in California yesterday asking a judge to end a 13-year court-ordered conservatorship, allowing her father, Jamie, to control her money and her personal life. In the hearing, Spears said she wanted her life back, saying it was doing more harm than good. Spears alleged that she's been compelled to take medication against her will, forced to work, and is barred from getting married or having another child under the arrangement. According to court documents obtained by The New York Times, in 2016, she told a court investigator the conservatorship had become an oppressive and controlling tool against her. The court ordered the conservatorship back in 2008 following a very public breakdown. But under the arrangement, Brittany can't choose her own attorney. So the attorney isn't working for her. And you don't have to be rich and famous like Brittany to get caught up in a system that strips your legal and your financial rights. In fact, there are roughly 1.3 million adults currently under the care of a guardian or conservatorship, family members or professionals controlling at least $50 billion of their assets. And most of those adults are elderly or disabled persons, creating situations ripe for abuse. There have been cases of firms specializing in guardianship embezzling fortunes. In one horrific case, a guardian in Florida put a do not resuscitate order on an elderly man, even though he said he wanted to live. And while conservatorships can be dissolved in a court, and 2018 Senate Aging Committee report found that courts often fail to protect those individuals and called for greater oversight. Now, there are situations where these conservatorships are good and, and necessary. Even Britney Spears has acknowledged that hers initially provided value. But tonight's absolute worst is, frankly, conservatorship abuse, because Britney Spears' case is getting the scrutiny it deserves. And maybe it will spark changes to a really toxic system much in need of reform. Free Britney. And that's tonight's readout. Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday.